Hello and welcome to season four of Making Design Circular with Katie Trugidden, in which I'm exploring what it takes to cultivate a creative practice in which you, your business and the planet all get to thrive. I'll be diving deep into the nuances, complexities and mindset shifts that we all need to embrace to bring about a just transition to a more circular economy. human beings we are not designed to go it alone so it can feel really daunting when we feel like oh my goodness the system is rigged for most of us to be at fault for most of us to fail when we recognize that we can start to embody the genius of our species which is connection and compassion mm -hmm. and all of that stuff and we can start to work together to create systems and structures that care for us and our planet. Hello and welcome to the final episode of season four. And if that makes you a bit sad, fear not, because it's a two-parter. I had such a juicy conversation with Tamu Thomas, the author of upcoming book, Women Who Work Too Much, that it was too much to just fit into one episode. So we've split it into two. Tamu is an absolute powerhouse. She is a woman I respect an enormous amount and somebody I've learned vast amounts from. And the nurture part of the Making Design Circular framework is very much inspired by, among other people, Tamu's work. So I was delighted to get the opportunity to talk to her about her new book. And here it is. So, Tamu Thomas, could you start by introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about the work that you do, but also why you do it? Yeah, so hi, my name is Tamu Thomas and I am a, I would describe myself as a trans transformational coach for women in business. Mm -hmm. And um, although I support people with their businesses, it's really life coaching because so much of the life stuff gets in, in the way of the business. So um, I am a coach for socially conscious, values-driven women in business who want to have a good impact on the world, who want to share good experiences and do stuff that's going to make the world a better place for everyone. And they want to make good money at the same time as doing that so they can live a good life as well. Um, and that poses lots of questions for the people I work with because they're very uh, wholehearted, very empathetic and compassionate, can get themselves in knots about what's ethical and what's not. And quite often those knots are rooted in a history of people pleasing or codependent behavior. So um, I really help people unravel their um, personal story so they can embrace it from a place of power because often people think, oh, but this thing happened and uh, I didn't achieve this thing. And they have all of these things that prevent them from seeing them, their whole story and mm. how wonderful they are, how far they've come because of those things we perceive to be flaws. So they can take care of those things, own them with passion so they don't dominate their um, businesses. Uh, so that's what I do. Uh, my people come from a broad range of backgrounds creatives so they may be artists singer songwriters um, framers uh, psychotherapists psychologists psychiatrists coaches mentors 
people from singer-songwriters, don't know if I said that one just now, but people from all sorts of backgrounds, a few product-based businesses, and I'm very clear with them, I don't have expertise in product-based businesses, but they come to me because they want to unravel the stuff that's going on beneath the surface. Mm -hmm. And I help them create a strong foundation for their business and a strong foundation for themselves so that they can build the business they want from a really sturdy place. Mm. And so they can be who they want to be so one of the things people say is they come to work with me thinking they're going to be like this brand new person and by the end of it they're just content with who they are and they embrace their weirdness and recognize that their weirdness enabled them to live lives that feel good to them so uh, that's what I do and I'm also I've joined your club I'm an author yes you are just finished writing my book and reading my audiobook women who work too much break free from toxic productivity and find your joy and um that book also speaks to the coaching I do because Mm -hmm. one of the things I observed very quickly is that when women have self-doubt and the vast majority of us have self-doubt because we are brought up in a system that doesn't support women being the magnificent beings they are, we end up trying to overcompensate by working far too much in every sphere of our lives. And my observation is we're either working far too much and underachieving or working far too much and overachieving, but not recognizing our worth our value and the things we're achieving so we're constantly stuck in a situation where low self-worth that doesn't come from the inside is dominating how we experience ourselves and therefore how we be in this world and I call time on that I call time on that and um, I wrote the book because what I noticed is that women because of our conditioning we're trying to use self-improvement to address systemic issues. And Mm. it doesn't matter how much we improve ourselves. It doesn't matter how much we work on our mindset. The other day, so I'm talking about November, there were posts being shared. I think it was the 22nd of November was equal pay day. That's when women um, are basically working for free. And what I pointed out is that white women started working for free from the 22nd. Black women in the UK, it was from the 27th of September, I think. And black women in America, it was the 20 something of July. Mm. So in a system like that, it doesn't matter what you do, invariably, you're not going to be making money that speaks to the weight of what you're doing because the system is not set up for you to thrive. And I think that we need to understand that so we stop seeing it as a personal failing And when we do that, rather than just thinking about it as self-improvement, we can start to work together to call time on the status quo. And sometimes it's just too rotten. So we might say, forget that. They can have that. Let's be in community together and create something that's more holistic and supportive for all humans. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a really clever trick that's been played on us by capitalism, right? If, if women are exhausted, it's because they haven't bought enough candles. You know, if the planet is burning, it's because you haven't bought a keep cup. And it's like, this is not, this is not 
individuals problems these are structural and, and systemic problems yeah. um but yeah I mean congratulations on the book I'm very lucky thank to you, have had a you. had a preview copy um and as I said to you just before I hit record it's so good thank you <laughs> there's just so much in there and having worked with you I recognized myself in in that description <laughs> of the people who are drawn to you um but having worked with you it's so lovely to to kind of really hear your voice on the on the page you know I'm sure that the audiobook is incredible because I could hear your voice just reading the text so and delighted. all the stuff you work with it's incredible um but I think it's really interesting because you know in theory your book shouldn't be relevant to my listeners you know that old adage choose a job you love and you'll never have to work a day in your life mm-hmm. my listeners are artists and craftspeople and designers and makers so in theory they should not be worrying about toxic productivity and mm-hmm. yet as you've just pointed out, many of them are women, many of them are women of colour, women with neurodivergencies, members of the queer community, disabled women. Um, yeah. I think I think craft offers a different way of working that often isn't available within corporate settings that appeals mm-hmm. to a lot of women and all the intersections that come within that. However, <laughs> we're still working within the systems and, and structures, right? Um, so... I know that toxic productivity is real for a lot of them, but they might not necessarily be familiar with that term. Mm. And I think there is real power in in naming things. So could you explain what you mean by toxic productivity? Yeah, toxic productivity is obsessive, compulsive need to be productive. Mm -hmm. And it shows up all over the place. So it shows up as the entrepreneur who will proudly say, I'm obsessed with my business. So they're constantly thinking about their business. They are on holiday, they're with their family, they're having a wonderful time and they're creating content because this is content that's gonna help them with their business. Or they've got this wonderful idea that they must do something about there and then because poof, the idea is gonna disappear. It can show up as, um, in motherhood, it can show up as perfection or what is often referred to as mum guilt which is usually mum shame, believing that you need to do absolutely everything for everyone. And motherhood is conflated with martyrdom, with um, uh, makers. I've worked with makers and it turns, it shows up as them toxically producing their makes because they're not pricing. Uh, One of my um, ex-clients referred to it as honest pricing. They're not pricing honestly. It's a creative job. It's a little job. It's a feminine job. It's all about um, emotion, emotional intelligence. It's not this hard, um, logical, masculine skill. So they end up having to overwork because they're not pricing their stuff accordingly. It's that person whose house you go to and before you finish drinking your drink, they're taking your drink away and they're stacking the dishwasher and they're wiping the surfaces. (laughs) They just can't stop doing. It is the person who um, is like a Duracell bunny. They just can't rest. As soon as they start to rest, it's almost like something within them the alarm bell rings and like, no, you can't stop. And they're up and they're doing something productive. It's people who talk about, I can't waste the day. I've got to utilize my time. And I'm like, if you knew that time is the conduit for your life, you wouldn't want to be using your time. You Mm. would want to be working in partnership with your time so that you're able to enjoy your time and do things, work, that will facilitate you enjoying your time. But instead, 
our whole life is organized around work and productivity. So in the book, I talk about <clears throat> when we're small children, our parents and caregivers work diligently to help us recognize what our needs are. And as soon as we're able to master our needs, we then suppress them because we've mm. got to be productive. We've got to be focused. We've got to have a good work ethic. So if you think about it, most people start school when they're four. So at four years old, you're going into school. You've just finished playing all day long, every day almost. And you go into school and you've got, you've got to sit on the carpet. You've got to sit, sit still. You've got to be good. And you've got to have most of your waking day being good, getting the answers right, being productive, being nice all day long. Mm. And when you can't stick to that, you're naughty or you're troubled mm. or whatever the case may be. And that's what we're supposed to do until what? where whatever the retirement age is, then we get the opportunity to enjoy ourselves, but we don't know how because we've never been taught or role modeled how to live a life that enables us to thrive. Mm. And it's even, I remember very clearly working with you and you talked about this idea of basic needs. If you're Ooh. hungry, eat. If you're thirsty, drink. If you're tired, sleep. If you need a pee, go for a pee. Yeah. And when you're in school, you have to wait till break time to go for a pee. And it's like my sister works in a school and as an adult, she also has to wait for break time. To go. And it's just the most mind blowing thing when you think about it. Like we Ooh. have these extremely basic needs to function as animal humans. And they're kind of, you know, we're asked to suppress them yeah. from the age of four. And yeah. it, it's so interesting. You talk about um, makers having to make because my audience are mostly makers and artists. And we mm. have a lot of conversations about this idea of I've got to be making all the time. Am I an artist if I'm not making art? Mm -hmm. And I often talk about this idea of kind of we don't breathe out all the time. Right. We have to breathe in and breathe out. So we have to spend time in art galleries talking to friends reading yeah. books resting yeah which is the breathing in in order to then mm -hmm. breathe out and work but our communities are both made up of people who want to make the world a better place right and I think sometimes you know I'll call it activism I think a lot of my audience wouldn't claim that title but I think it is um, I think a lot of that activism work comes with a sense of I can't rest because you know people are suffering and I have to I have to save the world. I have to save the planet. Um, and so there's kind of a sort of a linear logic and a, a sort of capitalist logic that the more work I put in, the more good I can do. Yeah. So you can see how that feeds into this idea of, of toxic productivity. Ooh. So why, why is it important that we don't just push through and follow that kind of very linear logic? Well, delving into you're um, talking about we don't just breathe in we need to breathe in we need to exhale and in fact something I say all the time is the rest is quite often more important than the race the rest is what ses sets us up and we often talk about being part of nature mm. actually no we are nature we are all children of this earth Whilst we were born of our mother's wombs, we are all children of this earth. There is nothing on this earth that is productive, that is producing all the time. Even our evergreen trees have times of rest and dormancy. We're not supposed to be doing that all the time. It is unnatural. So as we stepped into the industrial revolution, we started making all of these machines to make our life easier. But once we identified that we could create mass 
and people could consume more and that mass would result into profit it was profit and growth above everything else Mm. so it shifted how we experience ourselves and generally speaking we started to compare ourselves to the machines we created to make our lives easier Mm. and that's when we started talking more about consistency discipline has always been um, hanging around like from uh, from various religions but then we wanted to be disciplined like the machines Mm. and so I, they I broke down they got quickly fixed and they got back into action without considering that when we as humans have our breakdown in whatever shape or form that takes we actually need time to heal and repair you can't mm. just tinker around with a few wrenches and we're back to normal again mm. so, it's, it's so interesting isn't it I have a, a friend who's recovering from a fairly serious operation at the moment and she's on bed rest for six to eight weeks and day two she is absolutely climbing walls because she wants to be productive and it's this sense of actually your body is doing the work right now your your body is being productive right right it's healing it's rearranging organs it's doing what it needs to do to make you better but I'd I'd love to share the couple of sentences that you open the introduction with because they struck me as so beautiful and they speak really nicely to what you were just saying um you open with we have forgotten that we are miracles made of stardust We've forgotten that we share DNA with flora, fauna and much of the animal kingdom, an embodied reminder that we are all inextricably linked from the towering baobab tree to the majestic elephant, the delicate daisy to the newborn's first breath. We are all wondrous creatures shaped by evolution and experience. I mean, just beautiful sentences, if nothing else. But that kind of speaking of that. This is the first time I've heard somebody, I've got all the feels. This is the first time I've heard somebody read my words back to me. Oh, they're good words. Thanks, Katie. (laughs) They are good words. I like those words. They're beautiful. And they really struck me because they really speak to that idea that we are part of nature. And I think that that kind of separation of human and non-human is one of the biggest problems that has brought about the environmental crisis because it enables us to treat nature like a resource you know like a like a thing that we have control over rather than as part of ourselves but I I I kind of feel like at least the folks in my kind of orbit are starting to understand that we can't keep treating nature like that we can't keep taking and taking and taking Mm -hmm. but we're still treating ourselves like that so how do we kind of bring about that shift and, and sort of understand that we can't keep taking and taking and taking from ourselves and we have to kind of knit ourselves back together with nature? I think first and foremost, we have to recognise that this was conditioning that was placed on us. It's, it's not in our nature. Uh-huh. And because it's conditioning that is like intergenerational, it almost, not it almost, it forms an invisible psychological slash emotional contract. So when you're stepping away from it, we would say deviating from it, it feels like you're breaking rules. Mm. It feels like you're breaking the rules that the society, that has been set up for society. And many of us, particularly those of us that were socialized as girls, Being good, being a good girl was like one of the prized parts of girlhood. Mm -hmm. So when you decide to buck the status quo, 
and do things differently, not only might you feel like you're breaking rules, you feel like you're a bit of an alien. Quite often the people around you don't understand what you're doing and think you're weird. And those things come together and, you know, they create an embodiment of danger because our nervous system, the emotional center of our brain hasn't evolved since we were hunter gatherers living in our tribes, wherever we were. And that part of our system, that limbic system, that very reptilian um, part of us still thinks if I'm not towing the line and fitting in with my tribe, I'm gonna get kicked out and I'm gonna be at risk of serious harm, enslavement or death. Mm -hmm. So we have that kicking up inside us. We dismiss it and we use words very frivolously. Um, uh, I felt a sense of scarcity. Um, I felt fear. I felt anxious. All of those things in terms of our system tells us we're at risk of serious harm. So when we're choosing to do things differently, be different, believe different, invest differently, we have all of this stuff kicking up in our system. So we need to give up <clears throat> for a nervous system to be regulated in a manner where you feel safe enough to take the risk of truly living. Because mm. safety isn't about, oh, I'm so protected in a bubble. It's I feel grounded and safe enough to take this risk. Mm. Our nervous si system needs connection, context and choice. So when we know, ah, oh, I'm saying I feel anxious and anxiety is my body's way of communicating that I'm perceiving terror, you can start to say, well, I'm not about to be attacked by a saber-toothed tiger. I'm just deciding I'm not buying anything on, on Black Friday. Uh -huh. So when my friends send me all of these WhatsApp messages about which place has got a discount and I'm saying, oh, I'm actually not doing Black Friday this year, I, I can give myself context. So first of all, I'll give myself connection. I connect with myself and my why, why I'm not. I'm not telling anybody else they shouldn't, why I'm not. That also then provides you with a context. Oh, there's no saber-toothed tiger on the horizon. There's no opposing tribe with an arrow coming after me. And then that enables you to make a powerful choice. Mm. My choice being, I'm not gonna spiral and start to feel like they think I think I'm better than them and all of this kind of stuff. I'm just gonna say, thanks for that. I'm not doing Black Friday this year because that's my contribution to not overconsuming. Um, that's my contribution to this planet. Mm -hmm. So understanding these things helps you begin to make powerful choices and recognize that the contract it's, it's almost like, um, you know, when phones do an update and all of a sudden they've got these secret things in that you weren't aware of, you start to clock the secret things you weren't aware of and you start to decide, what am I going to take away? What am I going to keep? And you, we also have the to recognize we do live in a system of capitalism. Mm. My health costs money. My shelter costs money. So it's about being able to hold the yes and. Yes, and I want to, so one of my things I consider all the time is ethical pricing. So yes, I want to create an income that allows me to live well, and I want to be able to save and all of that kind of stuff. And I want to price things so that the people this particular thing is for, as many people as possible without, you know, mugging myself off, are able to invest. Mm. So it's about recognizing the tension between 
this is how in an ideal world I would live. But because I am living in a system where I need money to exchange for the goods I require, where do I stand? What choices am I going to make? And it's about recognizing things like, um, if I price this thing honestly, using my ex-client's words, I then had the capacity to be able to do uh, the things I need to do to look after myself. Let's face it, you talked about a number of the people, whether they describe themselves that way or not, in your community as activists. I say the same thing for mine. Being an activist, you might think this is woo or whatever, fine. Being an activist is a soul calling. Mm -hmm. Being an activist really comes from like the depths of you. You could choose to be avoidant and say, well, it's not impacting me right now, so I'm gonna continue with what I'm doing, but it doesn't. There's something that really drives you. When you're an activist, you put yourself at risk because you're often going against the grain. Mm -hmm. You read lots, you learn lots, you try to understand lots. And even when there are things that you believe are just terrible, because you're generally speaking a compassionate, empathetic person, you're going to try and understand that thing. Okay, I'm just in my mind, I said, you're going to try to understand that thing so you can dismantle that thing. But you are from a place of kindness and not shaming people. Mm -hmm. And that means that as whatever we are, practitioners, makers, creators, we need a really high level of care because we're giving so much of ourselves mm. and there is so much care, so much thought. Our spidey senses are off the chart. We are feeling into so much stuff. We need a lot of care. And if we don't have that care, we end up operating like a poorly funded charity and we go out of business. Case in point, the, uh, I would describe them as a media organization, Galdem. Galdem magazine, my observation, this isn't fact, but this is my observation. They were so focused on being altruistic and serving as many people as possible. They overlooked what they needed to be financially viable mm. so that they could be sustainable. And there are so many people in your world and mine who are constantly putting themselves in a position where they're not making the money they need to, to be able to do their beautiful work and have the impact they want to. Mm. And a lot of that is because they're judging themselves by capitalistic standards. Mm. There is a difference between, between trade and capitalism. Mm -hmm. If you're a maker of, um, I, I, work, I worked with someone who made crochet goods. She's there by hand. She's worried about what she's charging because she's comparing herself to some factory in the back of goodness knows where with child labor, people working 16 hour days with loads and loads of machinery. Mm. I was like, <clears throat> that is exploitation. Mm. What you're talking about is trade and pricing in a way that honors the time, energy and craftsmanship that mm. went into that piece of work. And also all those other things you were just talking about, which I don't think we traditionally mm -hmm. see as work. Mm -hmm. So that, that the care and the compassion and the energy that it takes to be countercultural, you know, we don't, when somebody's thinking about how to price a piece of craft, at most they're thinking about the hours it took them to make it, yeah. not the kind of 
time and energy and love that goes into thinking about how to price it and, and sourcing things ethically and, mm-hmm. you know, reading books and educating themselves and all, all the things you were just talking about, which I think often we don't see as quote unquote work. But if you're going to try to make the world a better place, that's all part of your work. Right. 100%. And And so we're not pricing for that. And we're also not allowing ourselves the rest and care that 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 facilitates which Mm -hmm. I'm repeating all this back to you because this is kind of clicking into my brain (laughs) as I speak and I think it's a really interesting you know one of the pillars of making design circular is nurture and I talk about the importance of looking after ourselves a lot but I hadn't quite kind of put that bit of the the puzzle together so thank you and that's how the system is designed and why do we not perceive that as work because we live in a patriarchal society that has decided that care is what women do mm-hmm. and we should do that for free. Mm-hmm. It is not something that has an immediately tangible, quantifiable, um, you can't immediately put a figure on it. Therefore, it doesn't count. That's what we're designed to do. We should just do it. Mm. However, what you will see in the corporate space, things that used to be described as soft skills they're not dis- there are many corporates that aren't describing it as um, as soft skills anymore mm-hmm. and there are many more big corporations that are looking at how they can bring more care into the workplace to support staff retention creativity mm. and all of that kind of stuff so it's really important for us we don't need more billionaires we no. need more care. Yes, I said that mm. in the book. Mm. But it is care that makes the world go round. In the book, I quoted um, Margaret Mead, who uh, was an anthropologist. Somebody asked her um, how they recognised uh, when civilization started. And she talked about, in an archaeological site, a broken femur bone that had mm-hmm. healed had been found, which indicated that in prehistoric times, some human beings went out of their way, put themselves at risk to support that person to heal. That requires a level of courage no amount of money can buy because mm. people put themselves at risk to be able to support that person because they wouldn't have been able to move and may have been gobbled up by goodness knows what predator or starved to death. Care is what makes the world go round. Mm. Care is what keeps us going. And because it is something that has been assigned to Um, women and non-binary people capitalism patriarchy and white supremacy decide it's not valuable Mm. and it's so interesting you mentioned that that corporate shift I I saw a silly meme on Instagram the other day but it made me laugh and it was a company saying to its employees we we really want to invest in your mental health and the employees say great so we need more pay we need you know compassionate leave we need days off and the company goes uh no we were thinking yoga (laughs) yeah or a ping pong table (laughs) right yeah, and it's that kind yeah. of that kind of sticky plaster approach rather than actually looking at the the systemic yes. stuff that that needs yes. to change I want to use this opportunity of a little sort of mini ad break of sorts to tell you about three things that I think you might be interested in. The first is my latest book Broken Mending and Repair in a Throwaway World which came out in May 2023 with Ludian, the publisher of my last four books. And I'm so excited about it. Jay Blades was kind enough to write the foreword and it explores the role of mending and repair in 
a world where we don't really need to mend anymore. So I'm looking at the social and cultural roles that mending is playing. And those include mending as restoration of function, which you might sort of immediately think of when you think of repair, but also repair as storytelling, repair as activism, repair as healing, and even the regeneration of natural systems as a form of repair. It profiles 28 amazing menders, fixers, hackers, remakers, curators, and artists. And it is the book I am the most proud of so far. And I know I always say that, but I really am. It came out of my research at Oxford, and I think it makes an important and new contribution to the field of writing on repair. So if you want to get your hands on a copy, the link is in the show notes. I would also love to tell you about a free resource I have created called Cultivating Hope in the Face of the Environmental Crisis. And the reason I have made this freely available is because I think it's so important. If we don't believe that change is possible, and if we don't believe we have some agency in bringing about that change, we won't act. So Cultivating Hope is a three-part mini course that's all delivered direct to your inbox and it helps you to move through feelings of despair and hopelessness. It helps you to reconnect with nature and that sort of brilliant effect that we know natural spaces have on our well-being. And it helps you to start taking aligned action. So if the relentless news cycle has got you feeling all the doom and gloom, then check that out. Again, the link is in the show notes. And finally, I want to tell you about Making Design Circular, the membership. So if you are a designer, a maker, an artist or a craftsperson and you feel drawn to sustainability, regeneration, environmentalism, whatever you want to call it, this is for you. It is a online membership community of brilliant, gorgeous, imperfect souls who have come together to try to make progress in this area. And it's all built around the idea that you can pour into yourself and take care of yourself and pour into your creative practice and your expression and exploration of creativity and pour into your business and turn all of this or keep all of this as a profitable business and benefit the planet. And we want all of those things in alignment so that pouring into any one of them benefits the others. And that's what the membership is built around. The strapline is rewild your creative practice so that you, your business and the planet can thrive. So if that sounds like something that you need in your life, again, the link is in the show notes. All right, well, I will hand you back over to this fabulous conversation. Thank you. So you open the first chapter with the words, it's not your fault. Why? Because we believe it's not our fault. Now, I don't like that word fault. And I try not to use that word. Um, I remember listening to a podcast it was Brene Brown and Dr. Sarah Lewis and Dr. Sarah Lewis was talking about fault was actually a word that came from agriculture, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> like faulty crops and failed crops. And then maybe she's talking about failed. Anyway, the moral of the story is the system of capital, like all of them. So I refer to capitalism, patriarchy and white supremacy as the trinity of oppression. Mm-hmm. The trinity of oppression makes it so that you believe everything is your fault. So uh, if you are a woman, you need to toughen up or you need to be kinder, you need to be good. Um, If you are a worker, you need to commodify yourself more, you need to produce more, you need to be more efficient, more productive. It's your fault, you're not doing enough. And you'll find 
that when people are having difficulty with quote unquote time management at work, they're given all of these improvement plans that add more work without recognizing they haven't been assigned enough time to do that piece of work in the first place. Uh, white supremacy, if you're a person of color, you're at fault because you're not white, you're not male, you're not heterosexual, you're not able-bodied and all of that kind of stuff. So the realm of normal has been squashed and squeezed into this really finite, narrow notion of what normal is when normal is absolutely huge and it varies depending on your background and environment. Mm. So we don't, we don't get taught all of that. We get taught if you are, um, if you're a woman, you're supposed to be kind. That's the rules without thinking about anything else. So we grow up believing that things are our fault. So if I look at things like, um, if we think about the motherhood penalty, where women and people who have children decide to take some time off work, well, that's your fault. Mm. You decided to have a child. No one forced you, you don't have to. So no, you can't come back and pick up where you left off. You've actually got to go back a few steps and we're not gonna trust you because you're gonna have football practices to go to. You're gonna have someone fall, uh, falling over at school that you're gonna have to go and pick up. You're gonna have all of these things to do. That means we can't trust that you're gonna be spending hours and hours at work, working overtime and doing all the things that need to get done. So you're gonna be penalized for that, it's your fault. Or if you are somebody who is neurodiverse, well, you're not going to be able to fit into our very linear way of doing things. And this is the way we do things. Why should we expand for you? Uh, you're abnormal. It's your fault. So it's just repeated, 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 repeated. And for me, my ADHD is a blessing. There are so many things my uh, deviant brain, uh, people may like to call it, facilitates and enables me to do mm -hmm. so much stuff my experiences as a black woman opens me up to and gives me a line of sight that non-black people and um, white people may not have mm -hmm. so this idea of these things being a fault if we flipped it and we don't just accept we embrace ourselves for who we are um, one of my clients described herself as like really stubborn. She felt like she was a stick in the mud when she really believed in something. And I said, but for me, that sounds like devotion. That sounds like passion. That sounds like commitment. That sounds like real belief. Like give me that over a fair weather type person all the time. Somebody who, uh, oh, I'm, I'm highly sensitive. We need more highly sensitive people in this world. Um, I believe that uh, because our sensitivity has been frowned upon is part of the reason why we have lost our connection with the earth and why we treat her so badly. And the way we treat earth mimics the way we treat women. I mm. said the other day on Instagram, I wonder if we would treat the earth this way if we perceived earth to be masculine. Mm. I don't think we would. So that it's all of this programming that leads us to believe it's our fault. And that's good because if it's our fault, we're going to spend thousands of pounds, loads of time, improving ourselves, busting through self-limiting beliefs. Oh, it's self-sabotage rather than recognizing, and it can feel a bit existential. Oh man, it's not me. It's the system. And the beauty is as human beings, 
we are not designed to go it alone. So it can feel really daunting when we feel like, oh my goodness, the system is rigged for most of us to be at fault, for most of us to fail. When we recognize that, we can start to um, embody the genius of our species, which is connection and compassion mm -hmm. and all of that stuff. And we can start to work together to create systems and structures that care for us and our planet. Yeah, absolutely. I, f I feel like you need a mic drop <laughs> 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 at that moment. Now, you mentioned the word embody there, and I thought mm -hmm. it was really interesting in the book, and I shouldn't have been surprised because I've worked with you, but we tend to think of books as quite heady things, right? We read, we think about what we've read, we maybe talk about what we've read, all that stuff is happening in your head. But every so often in the book, you ask the reader to stop and do something other than reading and reflecting. So there's mm -hmm. breathwork exercises in there, there's mindful body scans, there's joy practices, there's grounding practices. Why are these sort of embodied experiences important in the work of decoupling from toxic productivity? Why is it important we kind of reconnect mind and body? When we just leave our brain to its own device devices, we are using a fraction of our brain power. When we allow ourselves to be in touch with our body and our felt sense and our experience, we can then start to recognize that our embodied experience, how we feel in our body, mm -hmm. shapes the activity in our brain. Right. So uh, when you worked with me, I'm sure you heard me say, polyvagal theory teaches us that our story follows our state. Somatics teaches us that our, our mind permeates every cell in our body. If we can slow down and feel into our bodies, we are then, this is what I refer to as alignment, we are then allowing our brain to work in tandem with our hearts and our guts. So rather than making a decision that is based purely on logic, that often doesn't make sense with our lived experience, mm -hmm. we can then start to make holistic choices and decisions. And one way I like to articulate this is that when we are embodied, we are able to differentiate between our capacity and our capability. So a lot of us judge ourselves by what we're capable of. And what we're capable of is very cognitive. It's a very mind-based practice. So in my mind, I might say to myself that I am capable of creating six social media posts a week, having three Zoom calls a day, because in my mind, I can conceptualize that. I can see that. And our brains are so powerful if I can see that I can believe it. But then when I tune into my felt sense and I can feel that as I'm doing all this and I'm going to and I'm going to and I'm going to, my breath is becoming more shallow. My mm -hmm. heart rate is speeding up. My, um, my, my gut is like churning and grinding because that's far outside my capacity. My, my, my body is telling me, actually, that's not the truth. That is not how you operate. So when you're able to uh, be in right relationship with your body and slow down and listen in, you can then start making honest and powerful choices that will enable you to do more over a longer arc of time 
rather than what we do when we're only thinking about our minds, which is going for these really intense bursts that can't be sustained. And then we crash down. Mm. We forget that we can race ahead. We can overtake that car that's going slowly and still get stuck at the traffic lights. Or we can go at a steady pace by the time we get to that traffic light that that person has raced to get to, the traffic light is now green and we're cruising along. We're covering great distances without the jerky, jerky, stop, start, stop, start. And what we will find then is that we can be honest about how we work best and what suits us and about our natural rhythms. We, as a woman or men, uh, as a woman that menstruates or a menstruating person, we have our hormonal cycles, our hormonal rhythms. We have our own rhythms as human beings. And what I have found is that if I'm honest with myself about the way I work, I get far more done. When I'm dishonest with myself about how I work, when I'm not being embodied, I am doing all the things all the time, but I'm not really achieving anything because I'm dragging. I'm going so slowly because I haven't given myself the opportunity to uh, nourish myself, to be replenished, to be revitalized. Mm. All I'm doing is having just about enough recovery for me to continue. And I would much rather understand it's not just that you're tired. You absolutely hate this type of work. Is this something you can delegate? Because there is somebody out there who's going to love that, that frees you up to do more of what you um, enjoy doing. But capitalism tells us you have got to be consistent, which means doing the same thing in the same way. It's not really making progress. It's doing the same thing in the same way every day. That's not how anything in nature is designed. Mm. Is there, we've kind of talked about this academically, but is there an exercise from the book that you could take me through now that perhaps our listeners could do along with us just to kind of get an understanding of this in our bodies? Yeah, so, um, and I, I shared this in the book, but this, I just feel like it's a really uh, tangible way to um, demonstrate. So you can join, on, join in at home, as long as you're not operating heavy machinery or doing something that needs your focus. <laughs> So the invitation is to um, sit as you or stand as you normally would with your head facing directly oh, before I go into that. So this exercise is going to be demonstrating the difference between your capacity and your capability. Okay. And it also is a demonstration of your boundaries, like your natural innate boundaries. So with your head facing directly in front of you, I'm going to ask you to very gently turn your head left and right, backwards and forwards, but we're gonna be turning in those directions as much as you can before your body begins to strain. So you're not gonna turn left and right to your full um, capacity. You're going to turn uh, capability. You're gonna turn within your natural capacity. So if you very gently allow your head to turn towards the right, and stop as soon as you start to feel any pulling or tension that tells you you're about to stretch beyond your natural remit. Mm -hmm. And then bring your head back to center. And then we're gonna do it to the left. So you're gently turning your head to the left until you begin to feel pulling in your neck, indicating that you're going past your natural, um, what your natural ability is. And then bring yourself back to center. Let your head tilt forward so your chin moving down towards your chest. 
just as far as you go before you start to feel any pulling at the back of your neck and then bring your head to center. And then we're gonna do the same, but going backwards. So you're tilting your head backwards and you're stopping as soon as you feel any pulling or strain in the front of your neck and then bring your head back to center. So just take a moment and register what the span of your um, natural movement was. Now I'm gonna ask you to do the same, but you're gonna turn as far as you can without hurting yourself, okay? <laughs> I don't want anybody writing in and complaining or trying to sue me. So we're gonna gently turn to the right, but as far as you can turn your neck without hurting yourself. So let's move round and then stop as soon as it feels too much. Bring your head back to center. Do the same going to the left. So we're gonna gently turn as far as we can without hurting ourselves. Bring your head back to center. And then we're gonna tilt forward again, bringing our uh, chin down to our chest as far as you can before without hurting yourself. And then bring your head back to center and we'll do the same again, going backwards. So tilting your head back as far as you can and stopping when it begins to feel like it's too much. And then bringing your head back to center. So Katie, <clears throat> how did that difference feel? It's incredible, isn't it? How, it's, I do quite a lot of those sorts of stretches in yoga and they're, all, they're always as far as you can without hurting yourself. And it's amazing how quickly in the first time around, I got to the edge of what was comfortable yeah. And that idea of stopping when it's enough rather than stopping when it's too much, I think is really interesting. I, I Again, I clearly spent too much time on Instagram. I saw a, <laughs> a meme on Instagram the other day when someone had declined some work because she said, not because she had too much on her plate, but because she said she had just the right amount on her plate at the moment. And it's that, isn't it? It's that idea of just stopping when, when it's comfortable rather than when it becomes unbearable. Yeah. Mm. And, you know, with that, in mind and that embodied register we can start to then look at other places in our lives so that like this woman we can recognize when we've got enough on our plate and let's be real there are many times in life where we do have to go beyond our bandwidth sometimes but it's about recognizing the difference so that we can make choices and we can do that for finite periods of time mm -hmm. we have a sympathetic nervous system for a reason we go into states of fight or flight for a reason. They're not all bad, but it's for finite periods of time. What happens in our culture is that the rules of capitalism say, actually, you should always be beyond your capacity. That's mm. a good work ethic. That's being um, efficient. That mm. is being somebody who is reliable. And it just conditions us. If, if you think of us like a piece of elastic, it conditions us to always be overstretched, overstretched elastic. Or if we think about um, like our sympathetic nervous system in a healthy state, in normal conditions, the sympathetic nervous system is like when you turn the engine on your car and it gets started how we're conditioned to behave. I don't know if your audience are old enough to remember, but I remember when my dad used to have this red citron and he would, on cold mornings, he would have to pull the choke and uh -huh. he would be revving the engine. So the way our society is constructed, it's constructed for us to be pulling the choke and revving the engine all the time, like it's normal. Mm. And so we have situations where people use anxiety as a motivational tool. 
I worked with a group of women and I said, well, what would you do if you stopped using anxiety as a motivational tool? Katie, their faces were <laughs> shock, shock, horror. horror. Like this one. <laughs> yeah, like, you can't take my anxiety away from me. And I was like, but over time, none of this stuff will happen overnight. But mm. over time, we can start being um, motivated by what feels good what's in service of our long-term good as opposed to constantly being motivated by anxiety mm. which is our body's warning signal for terror I think it's so interesting isn't it and one of the points that I love that you made in the book was as we begin to understand this stuff not only is it not our fault but also it doesn't mean we're broken exactly and that that word really resonated with me you know I've got um, chronic illness so I spent a lot of my life feeling like I'm broken Ooh. and a lot of my life you know when you were just talking about how all those things are not your fault I realized that I do feel like that's my fault but why that particular word broken and kind of what what's the difference between understanding the fact that some of this stuff is problematic and owning our agency and allowing a, ourselves to feel broken in it if you think like just think about a vase that's broken, it's scattered. It's all over the place. It's no longer a vase. Mm. It can't hold the water, it can't hold the plants. So when we think we're broken, we think we're not whole. Mm. And what I say is, how you are in your human form, that's your version of wholeness. Mm. Capitalism, patriarchy, white supremacy benefits when you believe that you are broken because you are going to be a woman who works too much proving that despite my brokenness I can still yeah. work round the clock and grind despite and I'm like well what about the fact that these things make you you mm. what about like what is it what is that um is it the Japanese craft of using gold to? Um, yeah. What about how that gives you a you that that makes your vase unique mm. and it whole? Gives it a different exactly and whole and gives it a different vantage point. What about the fact that your chronic illness, Katie, makes you a much more empathetic and compassionate practitioner is probably why you do what you do, how you do it, mm. which means then that your nervous system becomes a regulatory source for other people and you're able to facilitate co-regulation. You work in the mentoring coaching space with your work. How many times have you been in or heard of a space such as that that has been hugely dysregulating. Mm. You've got to be up at 5 a.m. in the morning. You've got to be closing. You've got to be having X amount of sales calls. Don't let them get off the phone without closing them and all of that. None of that is healthy. None of that makes any human, be any human being feel whole. And a lot of the people I work with, they have been chewed out by those sorts of experiences. And when I say, well, this is the system I provide. How can we play with this so it works for you? Mm. And they're like, what? Because they're broken. They think that they've got to, they, because they think they're broken. They think they've got to squeeze all of their broken parts in 
in, into this system. And I'm like, no, mm. let's create a system that works with who you are. Yeah. So, Katie, I'm perimenopausal. And in the days leading up to my period, I am so, so drained. Like I'm, I'm drained to my core. Like I feel like there was um, an episode of EastEnders when Ian Beale was crying in Phil's lap saying, I ain't got nothing left. <laughs> I have days where I literally feel like I ain't got nothing left. And on those days, I give myself grace. Mm. I try to do the easiest things, the lowest hanging fruit. And if I've got stuff that I really need to do, trust and believe I'm doing it in bed with a hot water bottle. And I still have the chat. You should be at your desk. This is lazy. You're not ill. Do you know how many people have periods? Do you know how many people are perimenopausal? What's so special about you? All of that stuff goes on. And I say out loud, Tamu, that's not you. That's conditioning. Mm. And even though I'll be in that battle, saying out loud so I can hear it gives me just that little bit of breathing space for me to inhale a little bit deeper, exhale a little bit wider, get back into my body and remember that I am doing this to be in support of me rather than being in support of capitalism. Because who benefits? Yeah. And it's so interesting how many of us have built businesses and creative practices that replicate the systems and structures that we've tried to escape from, right? I mean, I've been working for myself for 13 years. And last year, I realized I don't have to start at nine o'clock in the morning. I can start at 10. And it was just like, like this moment, I heard the expression, I can't remember where I read it. So forgive me for not crediting it properly. But the idea of creating a business you can belong to. And rather than that, despite the fact I'm broken, I will adhere to this system actually this is who I am I'm whole and flawed and whatever how can I build my business or in the case of many of our listeners your creative practice Mm -hmm. in a way that supports the wholeness of who you are and it's such it was such a radical reframe for me that there's not there's nothing wrong with the fact that I don't do my best work before 10am I just shift my day back by an hour who cares like nobody's checking what time I turn up for work (laughs) one of the things that I say is Get really clear about how you want to live your life Mm. and create work that supports that. Mm. When you're working for yourself, unlike people who work for employers and they have to fit in to, you know, the working practices and whatever else, we have the unique opportunity to be able to create work that supports how we want to live. It doesn't mean, you know, there are some people that go so far off the scale, they're prioritizing ease and they're not doing the things they need to do. But for the most of us, if you think about creating work that supports how you want to live. So I talk about creating a business that has your back. Mm, so like that. you, like <clears throat> when I when I came up with that, I was like, oh, my goodness, exactly. Because before I oh, that's given like, that's given me goosebumps. Tammy. I love that. And many of us feel like our business stabs us in the back. Yeah. And I'm like, no, I want a business. So if my business has my back, how does this, how does it have my back? So for me, I love strength training. It's really, really important for me. It helps me feel really good. And when I try to do the very early morning stuff, it takes me too long to recover. If I leave it too late in the day, I'm just not going. So I just thought, well, I'm just going to shift my day to start at 1030. So I've got time to take my daughter to college get to the gym, come home and be ready so that I'm fully present for the people I'm working with at 10.30. Mm -hmm. 
I had I haven't failed anyone by starting my day at 10:30 and in fact my capacity is bigger mm. because we talk about basic needs I actually refer to them as um, fundamental needs or foundational needs I have met that foundational need of moving my body the way my body needs to be moved mm. for me weight training is like a spiritual practice which means I'm then ready for the people in front of me it also means that I'm utilizing my energy in a way that I'm then craving wholesome foods. I'm much less likely to binge on yes. fizzy strawberry laces. Fizzy strawberry laces, they're the ones. And I'm much more likely to eat wholesome food. And it all has a knock-on effect. And also, when I create a business that has my back, I'm able to make powerful decisions a lot faster. Mm. I have got huge people pleasing vibes inside me and when I am not operating my business in the way it has my back people pleasing shows up in my business that means I make choices to work with people because oh gosh they really need my help as opposed to this product this service is right for them when I create a business that has my back there are lots of coaches and mentors etc that will say well they provide the service is up to the person whether or not they show up that's not how I operate if it's not working out for somebody I'm going to meet with them to look at how we can do things to make it better for them and if it still doesn't work I am brave enough to have the conversation and say I don't think this is working this is no longer an investment for you mm. I think we should call time on this if I'm not, if my business doesn't have my back and I haven't structured it to have my back, I'll then put myself in a position where I'm working with people that I know the work isn't working for anymore, simply because I haven't set up the systems and structures for the business to have my back. And for me, one of my core values is integrity. Well, two of my core values, integrity and social justice. It's not socially just for me or the people I'm working with to continue working with them when I can see it's just not working uh, regardless of what we've tried. And I'm not in integrity if I'm saying, well, they paid their money, it's their lookout. Mm. Because I think that actually when we do this work, we both come together to create this living, breathing body of work. And if the body of work is dead, it's not just down to one person, it's something we're co-creating together. Mm. So. And also another thing when we're thinking about businesses having our back and being clear about how we want to live, we're then like, oh gosh, right. So if I want to be able to pay all of my bills and if I want to be able to pay my VA the rate she charges because that's what she charges and I want to honor that. And if I want to buy things that are better for the environment or whatever and they cost a bit more money I actually do need to price this thing this way yes because of the value and also because I have needs as well we can start being honest about what we need and what we desire instead of shaming ourselves because again when we're not clear about what we need and what we desire we judge ourselves according to capitalism and consumerism mm. and we start to behave as if us wanting to make I don't know 10,000 pounds a month is because we're greedy capitalists as opposed to for me to have a sustainable business and a sustainable life I need to generate that revenue. Mm. Absolutely it's so interesting isn't it how how much we kind of 
shame ourselves just for wanting to meet our needs and our wants and our yeah. desires, all of which enable us to show up mm-hmm. whole and do the work that, mm-hmm. that we want to do and the, make the contribution we want to make. As I mentioned in the intro, this conversation was just too juicy to fit into one episode. So if you want to hear the rest, you will have to wait for the very final episode of Making Design Circular season four. Oh, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Making Design Circular with Katie Tregidden. It is so lovely to know that there are people out there tuning into these conversations. If you found that interesting, I would love to connect with you on Instagram. I am on katietregidden.one. And if you're a designer, maker, artist or craftsperson who's interested in sustainability and environmentalism, then please also follow Making Design Circular on at making underscore design underscore circular underscore and both of those are in the show notes you can also follow my email newsletter there i would be super grateful if you're listening to this on an iphone or ipad or other apple device if you could leave us a review on apple podcast i think that's the only podcast platform that takes reviews but it's incredibly helpful to help people find us and make sure that more and more people are finding this message so if you could take a couple of moments just to leave a review there that would be amazing i would also like to say a quick thank you to the incredible kirsty spain who produces and edits this podcast and keeps me on track so that these episodes actually make it into your ears so thank you very much kirsty 